netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. Today, we're going to do something a little special and a little different. We're going to talk to one of our own, one of our family, Ian Fales, who's published a book called Masters of Effects, an actual physical book. Um, In this book, Ian, who writes for us, I'm not sure how many of you check the bylines on the stories of FX Guide, but Ian is responsible for a lot of the in-depth articles that you see on FX Guide, works with Mike down in the Sydney office, and is one of those people who's just super passionate about visual effects and always has been. So the book includes 16 masters of visual effects. And um, you'll see people like John Bruno, Scott Farrar, Paul Franklin, Ian Hunter, John Knoll, Rob Legato, Dennis Muren, Phil Tippett, just to name a few. And um, what's great about the book is that it covers a wide range. You get not only people who've come up from the practical effects uh, miniatures world, but also digital and and also um, Edson Williams at, at Lola, for example, is one of the more modern um, uh, digital only pioneers in in the field. So, and there's just a ton of great images too. That's the thing that really took me away when Ian sent me a copy of the book. Um, I was blown away by the images in the book, and that had to be so much work uh, on the publisher's part to put that together to just get such great imagery to accompany the the, the work uh, and the great interviews that Ian did. So it, it's just really interesting to to be able to sit down and and, and look. It's it's, it's going to be one of those books that is important in the history of visual effects and uh, keeping um, on your shelf with other great volumes that uh, have, have come before. But th- this one is really special to us because Ian works so hard. And, um, you know, like he and Mike talk about, you know, they've, they've both talked to these people um, several times over the years um, with different interviews here and there. So um, it's just great for Ian to be able to, to step forward and compile this, this collection of interviews. So I, I want to jump right into this um, this interview now, Mike Seymour speaking with our own Ian Fales about the book, Masters of FX. Thanks, Jeff. Well, yes, Ian, you have a book out. Congratulations. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I do. It's, uh, it's great. It's, it's been fun having it out and, and the world seeing it. Okay, so let's, let's quickly kind of give an overview for people that haven't actually necessarily seen it yet. Firstly, the title. The title is Masters of FX. So the sort of lower, like the subtitle of that is Behind the Scenes with the Geniuses of Visual Effects. So that's a bit of a tall order to say that you've got the geniuses of visual effects. But right out of the gate, you've got an intro or rather a forward by James Cameron. Yeah, that was, that was such an amazing thing that he would agree to do that for us, for this book. Um, and, you know, it's a funny story how he came to do it, actually, because a lot of the supervisors in the book, and we'll get to them, have worked with James Cameron, and I thought, well, considering so many have worked with him, why not ask him? Uh, look, I think that's a brilliant idea, and quite frankly, his comments um, are really, really interesting. Um, as you would know if you read the book, um, he basically is discussing the fact that a lot of people in this uh, list of people that we're about to get into kind of invented and were pioneers of, uh, of visual effects and made many of them the transition from traditional effects to digital effects. Yeah, that's right. And obviously he was there himself, James Cameron, at 
you know, for some of these movies that basically pioneered practical effects, but also digital work. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. has done a couple of films that then. <laughs> um, okay, so um, so let's just discuss who you've got uh, in the in the lineup, just sort of in uh, broad terms. Like, how many are there in total? There's about fourteen. There's the sixteen visual 16. effects supervisors, um, and they really do across that you know practical effects miniatures digital and um, i would say almost a new wave of visual effects too which is sort of that facial stuff um facial animation and digital characters but yeah i mean you know one of the earliest people working in the industry i guess that we know of is doug trumbull um he's the person that worked on 2001 space odyssey blade runner star trek the motion picture um, you know, there's other amazing visual effects supervisors like Dennis Muren, Richard Edland. Uh, there's John Knoll from ILM as well. Rob Legato, Jala Terry. Yeah. Uh, Ian Hunter, <laughs> Scott Farrar, <laughs> Paul Franklin. There's quite a few people here. Um, another one that's right up there with, uh, with Douglas Trumbull um, and, uh, you know, the early pioneers is, of course, Richard Edland, who I got to interview uh, in L.A. And um, just these are fascinating guys. Yeah, Richard Edlin. I mean, I think some people forget that he worked on the original Star Wars trilogy. Oh, yeah. Um, we won't forget that, but a lot of people, because he sort of moved on from ILM, um, created his own facility called... Um, Boss, wasn't it? Oh, why am I blanking on that? Yeah, Boss Boss Film. Yeah, but not only that, but like he did Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ghostbusters, did a ton of stuff. Yeah, and actually, he did one of my favorite films in terms of visual effects, which so is... That multi- would be Speed? <laughs> Hmm. No? No. But he did work on Multiplicity, which I remember watching when it first came out and not not being in the visual effects industry and not knowing how things were done really and thinking, how did they do that? Because at the time it was quite seamless without, you know, mostly digital compositing. It was a lot of video effects compositing at least to do the lineups and everything like like that for the multiple Michael Keatons. Yeah. I'll be slightly harsher and say, I think I asked the question, why did they do that film when it came out? But <laughs> but it was, you know, good visual effects. Hey, let's, before we do that, just, you know, just elaborate on why I teased you about it being Speed. Because Speed was the film that was the galvanizing sort of influence in your life in terms of everything from why you wanted to get into the industry to your choice of, you know personal style i mean you look remarkably like keanu reeves (laughs) look i i think that's actually true it came out in 1994 and that's when i was 16 years old um to me it was a film that had not much plot frankly but this frenetic and ongoing action sequence that lasted the whole film with really great camera work and part of that is because the director used to be a cinematographer um and, you know, ever since then, I just have been, was fascinated by filmmaking. And, you know, most people might know if they listen to the podcast that I actually collect speed memorabilia, including posters and... Blow up buses. Blow up buses and dolls and... Yeah. Yes. And I'm you've actually... Ashamed. No, no, you, you've had a remarkable opportunity to talk to just about everyone associated with that film. I remember when you were talking to some of the guys that uh, invented Shake who actually worked on that original film. They were like, can we have some uh, clips and some tests here somewhere? I don't know where they are. And you were like, really? Really? Because if you... <laughs> oh, that was Ron Brinkman. And he told me during that VFX show that we were doing that he threw out the wedge tests yes. for some of the, the bridge sequences a week before we recorded. I was really upset. Yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so apart from your obsession with speed, um, which is quite healthy, um, 
it does bring up uh, like a really interesting issue because Speed was a film that came out in that point when digital was just kind of taking hold. I mean, Shake was the software that was used at that time and Shake was very much at the sort of the pivotal point of compositing moving from old school to new school, which is a point that I think is reflected throughout this book. Not so much Shake, of course, but this idea of old school and new school. Um, some of these people we're referring to, I think you referred to this this area of like what you'd call new, what did you call them? Was it new school well, or new? I guess there's a new wave new of wave, visual effects right. supervisors. So who would, you, who would you say is like leading the new wave? Well, I'd have to say Paul Franklin from Dean Egg. Um, really? Because you, I, when you said it a moment ago, you said it was characterized by faces. I would have put Joe Letteri at the top of that heap. Well, look, I guess a bunch of them do in a way. But depending on when they started in the industry, they have begun in a a field of practical effects and sort of moved into digital. Joe Letteri, for example, got his biggest visual effects start on Jurassic Park. You know, and he Which was, was the turning point for digital for many course, people. Yeah. And then I feel like he really, as we all know, did bring this concept of uh, digital characters and basing it off real world um, animals, people, whatever, to wet a digital, basically when he started on Two Towers. Well, I think Gollum is just... Uh, I mean. Not to take away from the work that I think uh, was it ILM or Framesaw did on the original um, uh, Dobby. Yes, ILM. Oh, ILM, yep. yeah. But so that was pivotal work. But yeah, I think that the work started with Gollum, that continued through to the new Gollum, but also, of course, the Planet of the Apes stuff, King Kong on the way, and Avatar um, makes for me like it's a body of work that so embraces, um, I think, a craft that is is realism. It's like very realistic um, work in, in that sense, not sort of like fantasy work. I mean, you don't look at the apes and think of them as being overly anthropomorphized, overly, um, you know, humanized in a sort of even silly way. But by the same token, as real as you think King Kong facial expressions might be for an ape, it's a giant ape climbing up <laughs> um, the Empire State Building. But, but yeah, he sort of brings that, uh, that dedication to trying to get it right even if that means what seems like near obsessive sort of detail, because to get faces right is sort of the, I think the la- would you agree the last big holy grail? It still is the last big holy grail, but frankly, ever since he started at Weta Digital, they've been implementing technologies that seem to um, help solve the face problem, the muscle problem, the fascia problem, um, the lighting problem with spherical harmonics, you know. And so it's the art of what he's been doing, but Weta Digital in particular have been really implementing new tech that in some ways not every other visual effects facility can do. And of course, you know. we've been talking about those characters, but in the last couple of films, Fast and Furious 7 in particular, and now with um, Hunger Games, we are talking about films that really have... Um, I think certainly in the Hunger Games, the digital shots um, of Philip Seymour Michael Hoffman... Uh, did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> is Is... <laughs> It's just indistinguishable. Um, I mean, there's great character work in the uh, in the sort of the sewers or whatever, but the it's the work when you take an actor that's obviously passed away for tragic reasons and um, and been digitally replaced. I expect to see more of that coming from other places. I, I don't know. I'm no, not giving any spoilers away, but I imagine that ILM's got a few tricks up its sleeve with the new Star Wars. Why wouldn't they? But but that brings an interesting point, doesn't it? Like only really at the moment, Weta and ILM, maybe to a certain extent you could argue Dean but they have such relationships with their filmmakers that they have a roster of films that allow them to do R&D. 
And yeah, I feel like that right. was something that was always back in the in the in the early heydays. It didn't happen for Star Wars itself, the individual film, because it was a one-off. But once it got into the sequels, I kind of knew they needed to build technology to take not just this film but the next one. Now, certainly today, it feels like Weta's doing that. It feels like ILM's doing that, and maybe Dean Egg's doing it because of their relationship with Nolan. I think you're right. It it ILM all was able to do it because they were the biggest facility for a long time. Weta now has lots and lots of projects for the next you know, five, ten years, as does ILM. But you could also say that, you know, there was a time just after the early 2000s that the Harry Potter films were also doing the same thing with advancing the London visual effects scene. And that includes Dean Egg and Paul Franklin worked on those and, you know, the other facilities also, MPC and Framestore, got the benefit of that. Well, while we're still on digital faces, because I'm going to swing back in a second to discuss old school, but but another big contribution that I think is sometimes a little overlooked, not, not completely overlooked, obviously, but just a little sort of forgotten in the slate, is just how significant John Knowles' work was on, um, on Pirates. Because I think that the work that done on um, Pirates of the Caribbean in terms of, um, you know, um, God, what was his face? You know, like um, with the tentacles. Um, well, the actor's Bill Nye, but... Yeah, um, um, what's his character? I was going to say... Uh, okay, so I'm blanking. Oh, me too. But you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. Bill Nye's character... The, the the way the tentacles did the um, the intersections so that they uh, did in fact move have a life uh, and not uh, grossly intersect the way that it managed to still deliver a performance even though you know we'd really moved so far away from what you'd think you could get a performance out of it's not a realistic face uh, as in the Fast and Furious or Hunger Games examples but man it was a huge contribution and yeah we think of John Knoll these days I think. You know, obviously, he's the sort of creative head of ILM, but the man has uh, real chops when it comes to the history of the films he's worked on. That's absolutely true, and that character is David Jones. Thank you, yes. Sorry. Um, but what I think audiences really responded to there wasn't even that it was CG or that the tentacles looked so great and they were wet and squishy. It was that they could still see Bill Nye in yep. the character. And, you know, that's exactly what ILM did. They preserved it um, basically basically by roto-animating his face. There were some great leaps forward that they did have with I'm a Cap, you know, their motion capture yep. tech, but, but really it was about preserving the performance. And I think clearly that's what Gollum's been doing and other things in Apes and other successful human characters too. Yeah. You spoke to John Knoll about Dead Man's Chest. Um, given his body of work from Mission Impossible to Pacific Rim to whatever, I mean, did you get any sense, like when you're talking to someone like John, about... Not a, not necessarily like a favourite, but just like a sort of a a pride or a particular love of anything. Any one film? I, mean, I, I think it was, you know, believe it or not, it was Phantom Menace. And the reason there was the pod race sequence. Mm-hmm. He was able to take little snippets of work that he'd done on one of the Star Trek films, which I can't remember at the moment, but also Mission Impossible in terms of um, a photogrammetry and projection mapping. And really use that to huge effect during the pod race for the environments that the you know the pods go through, in that they would build these miniatures of the rocky formations, um, and then they would take photos of them and basically using projection mapping photogrammetry, they could then create the CG environments. It was actually still early days, you know, in in that sort of world. What was that, 1998, when they were doing it? Well, doesn't in the article he mention Electric Image in that story? Yeah. He, he's even, he had this mate at Electric Image, and he said, oh, I've got this idea about how to do this thing, and he didn't give it a name or anything. 
And, you know, Electric Image was a pretty popular piece of software then. It's, yep. It's, it's actually still around, apparently. But okay. um, <laughs> And this guy at Electric Image just sort of knew exactly what John was talking about and said, oh, I can make you something that does that, you know, with the the right way that the UV coordinates work and what had to happen. And, and he made it, and there it was, and that's what they used. Um, and so I think John fondly remembers the sort of innovation and sort of techiness behind that because he is that kind of guy you know he sort of loves solving solving problems basically okay so we could talk about each one of these in enormous detail because you know uh rob legato and his work with titanic was just pivotal right and of course he went on to win the oscars with hugo and he's just done a ton of stuff um but i think you told me over coffee one day that one of the most fun interviews you had was with phil tibbett is that right it was. And why was that? And you never got to finish the story. I think I, I left with my latte. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Phil has an interesting perspective on the industry, partly because he did start in the old school stop motion world and then, you know, worked on Jurassic Park, which is where basically his stop motion techniques, it's even re- um, referenced in the movie, became extinct. But it's not like he gave up. He basically left ILM, um, you know, went away, created his own shop, Tippett Studio, and basically reinvented the art of animation in some ways with Starship Troopers. That's what I think about how he sort of, you know, didn't, that the change in the industry didn't seem to affect him. He actually embraced the changes. And really, for a while, he was sort of the go-to person in Hollywood um, for sort of crazy animation or creature animation. And, um, you know, that continues today. He's still sort of very fondly looked at. Um, people often remember the problem that he had on Jurassic Park, which is that his credit was dinosaur supervisor, you know. And uh, there's a fantastic internet meme that basically people saying, well, you didn't do a very good job. They killed everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and he jokingly, you know, refers to... Well, they didn't do a very good job because they went extinct. But, um... <laughs> he jokingly pretends to get angry about that sort of thing, you know. Right. Um but I think I think that's why I enjoyed talking to him the most. He was very frank about the industry, frank about what he thinks about animation these days, and really that you really need to go back to old school techniques to to give a character emotion. You know, it's not really just that it's in the computer. He he actually is making another stop motion film called um, uh, I think it's Mad. I'm, I'm blanking well, on it. That's his sort of like personal project, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Mad God. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I just really enjoyed talking to him because we've talked to him a lot at FX Guide over the years, and here he was a bit more personal than he's been before. Yeah, I mean, I think both you and I have, you know, pretty much spoken to nearly all these people on several occasions. But, but I, I certainly learned stuff from the book. I thought it was really good. I, I thought it was just showing off having Jim Cameron doing the uh, intro and then having uh, Duncan Jones, uh, you know, as a. <laughs> But that's fine. No, no, that's fine. You, 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 you can go for it, my friend. Hey, no, but one of the people that I really enjoy talking to, and I'm so glad that you got them in the book, is Scott Farrar. And the reason for that is that you know, this is a guy who really started early on, I mean, completely early on at ILM. He's still at ILM, but you know, could you think of a more heavyweight um, digital film than the Transformers films? So you've got somebody that started on like Star Trek The Motion Picture and, and Wrath of Khan, and he's like a, an effects cameraman on Wrath of Khan. By the time you're up through the digital age, he's now doing you know Transformers 1, 2, 3, and 4, um, and doing just such incredibly heavy-duty digital work, and nothing seems to phase him. Now, 
there are other people like that at ILM, like um, Dennis Murin. But I don't know. Scott just seems to have not, lost none of his enthusiasm for the craft. I absolutely agree. And there's another part of it that I was really interesting talking to Scott about, which was the way visual effects supervisors become collaborators. Now, of course they are. You know, they're very important these days on big blockbuster films. But I guess in the old days, sometimes they were often considered the people that went away and did everything in post-production. Now, they're the go-to people in concepts, you know, planning, previews. Um, He told a story about on Minority Report, where they were sort of deciding how the city, the future city of Washington would look. And he said that he suggested to Stephen, well, actually what would probably happen is that they would build these maglev roads on top of the existing Washington. It's not like they'd get rid of the existing yeah. buildings. And, you know, in the end, that's what the film looks like. It's it's the old city with the maglev on top, and that's something that came directly from Scott's suggestion. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking to him, especially about Transformers. Also, the kind of things he had to do when he had to come in you know, late in the day to supervise the effects for World War Z. Um, there was sort of a trouble production and, and had a lot of reshoots. But he came in, had a fresh perspective about the swarming zombies. And, um, and he's just that kind of guy, again, a real problem solver. So we wouldn't be uh, right and you wouldn't have succeeded in talking to the masters of um, FX if you hadn't spoken to Dennis Murin because Dennis is everything that um, that we respect. I mean, apart from being about the most awarded um, man, woman or child in the existence of the Oscars, um, he's also just incredibly knowledgeable and, again, like Scott, spans both worlds. Um, I mean, I love just how much he embraces what makes a character work and doesn't care where the tech is. Um, he's not that young. I mean, not, I mean, a go at him or anything, but obviously just, he's just not that young. Um, he's still incredibly engaging. Did you enjoy? I mean, you must have. He's just yeah, and I, and I knew with Dennis that I could, if I was allowed to, I could probably talk to him for five hours. Yeah, um, which wasn't the case at all. But it meant that on each film that I wanted to ask him about, I had a specific story that I wanted to ask about. And so, on Return of the Jedi, that was the use of Steadicam for the speeder bike chase, right. which I always thought was so genius. Yeah, you know. And then Terminator 2 was really what the digital compositing solutions were there, because a lot's been said about the CG. Um, but it was also one of the first productions that ILM had done with digital compositing. And then so Jurassic Park, I think, you know, that really was about adding character the, to the dinosaurs. AI, I enjoyed talking to him about the, the uh, on-set uh, capture that, you know, meant that they could do live previews or live comping. Um, and then World War Z... I was fascinated with the way I'd heard about that project where they they basically didn't have much time to do the visual effects. Um, you know, it was one of the quickest turnarounds. And really, it's also, to me, one of the most seamless pieces of visual effects um, that Dennis has worked on. So, so that was really fun, talking to him about just solving, you know, problems on set, getting it done really quickly, and, you know, using the new tools to do it. Now, I don't want to imply that the book is primarily focused in the past, because... You've got uh, Edson Williams in here, who, as people know, I just think is like one of the greatest compositing soups (laughs) of our time. Um, He's a visual effects supervisor behind stuff from the Marvel Universe that makes your jaw hit the floor, such as um, Skinny Steve. But not not just that. I mean, obviously, there was the stuff from X-Men, most recently the stuff in Ant-Man. 
Um, but all high-end compositing, you know, there's a tiny bit of 3D in um, in the work they did for the last Avengers film, but it's pretty much just skilled craftsmanship of compositing. And so the book isn't a retro thing that's just looking back. You, you hit all the new stuff as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Edson's there, and partly just because of that groundbreaking work that he, he's been doing, Digital Beauty, but it really sort of started with X-Men The Last Stand. Um, and then everyone well, of course, actually, it started before that. We just weren't allowed to hear yeah. about it because it was cosmetic makeup where actors that have in their contract, we want these guys, uh, Lola, to make me look like I've got a six-pack and lose my second chin. And it was the biggest secret in Hollywood, like who had this in their kind of contract, mm. and they weren't allowed to publicize anything. But you're right. From a public point of view, yeah. X-Men, I think, was when they came out. But I just love that he's allowed to talk about his work now. And, and you know, people really actually loved the Michael Douglas stuff in Ant-Man this year. Yeah. And I also thought... Um, uh, their skinny Steve stuff is still the best around of just that kind remarkable. of work. Yeah. I mean, it was just so jaw-droppingly good that yeah. you thought that they'd got someone that was just the best, you know, look-alike possible. Um, mm. I would have loved to have been with the actor the first time he saw himself looking that skinny and that weedy because <laughs> you'd be like, what? Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, and obviously he's still working. In fact, all the supervisors in this book are still working um, and that's that's what's amazing about it. Um Another person I really enjoyed talking to was Bill Westenhofer, who did Life of Pi. And we all know the story behind that film um, and just the genius tiger work. But he is also on that new uh, Warcraft film with Duncan Jones. So cannot wait for that next year. Yeah, that little Warcraft film. That has a little <laughs> bit of stuff in it, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so so let's just shift gears for a second and say, so you've got this perspective. You've got these uh, 16, I think you said. Um, That's right. You know, card-carrying um, experts who any one of which is you know a treat in their own right but what I want to discuss with you is this balance of old school and new school in the new films now it's come up a bit lately where um, I'm going to point it particularly to Mad Max who isn't in your book but in the film Mad Max um, they use digital effects they use practical effects before the film came out they were really pushing the fact they did practical effects there was no green screen dot 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 and as I've you know joked about several times it was like 1100 visual effects shots in the film not that that to take anything away from the practical effects it was just a blending of the two um techniques uh, from your perspective and talking to these guys and your own perspective on on films do you feel that it is a marketing thing or an actual thing because it seems like some films and i'm going to point to the latest bond film uh, where they blew up um the uh secret lair in um, morocco wherever it was and they did, you know, the Guinness Book of Records' largest explosion ever. Mm. Where I just think that was a marketing um, ploy. Like it was no, there was no need to blow that sucker up in a practical sense, other than they wanted to be able to say they did it practically. Because we have such good explosions, such good sims. It was at a distance; it wasn't even a close-up shot. Um, it would have been completely possible to do that with uh, cutting-edge digital. And it wasn't as if this was a small-budget film. It had like three hundred million or something. 250 whatever million dollar budget and yet they were like no no we're going to do it in one take with the actors actually standing in front of it for real so marketing ploy or i know exactly what you mean and i've i've talked about it quite a lot when i've been on the vfx show i don't know if it is a marketing ploy but it's a response to something and it's a response i think to this sort of thing that film goers sometimes say when they're coming out of the cinema which is I don't want to see another CGI building being destroyed or I don't want to see big dumb robots fighting on the screen who are CG. And I think 
the reaction from filmmakers and possibly also the people who are funding the films or marketing the films is, can you try and do it as real as possible and we'll make the most of the fact that you are doing it as real as possible with stunts or practical effects. Um, what What's interesting about that, though, I think, is that, like you say with Mad Max, they do do it in Namibia with real stunts, but then clearly visual effects is used to enhance the stunt, to add extra vehicles, cars or people or whatever. Um, and so <laughs> the problem with the marketing of that is that they then say, the director even says, oh, we didn't use visual effects much. But of course they did. See, here's yeah. the thing. For me, um, let's say you're talking about miniatures for a second. If you did a lot of miniatures, like a ton of miniatures work, and it looked like miniatures, then people would come out of the cinema and say, I really hate miniatures, right? But they don't hate the miniatures because they love them in Star Wars, right? Um, they love them in a whole lot of films, but they don't like them when they look like miniatures. And mm. so my argument would be, well, it's not that they don't like CG. They just don't like CG when it looks like overused CG. Now, in Avengers, in the Marvel Universe, when you've got flying helicarriers and clearly, you know, characters like Hulk and stuff, I'm not getting people walking out and saying, I hate that Avengers has gone so CG. I'm not hearing that. No. But I am hearing if you get a ridiculous destruction porn sequence, <laughs> like, um, was it 2012? I think it was. Yeah. yeah it's like, where it's like, really, there's no plot. You just basically got destruction sequences. And then you're looking at a destruction sequence showreel. Now, I'm up there with the best of them. I'm wanting to see a showreel on mm, destruction sequences, mm. but it doesn't actually make me leap in the chair. Um, so I, I, I think you know this, uh, Ian. I kind of cringed <laughs> under the, the chair a little bit when they were drilling into Bond's head, oh, yeah. even though I knew that they weren't actually putting a drill into his head. It was just believable CG. Um, now, do you know what I mean? Like, I just, yeah. It can't be that it's CG. It's just that it's an over... Or it's the impossible shot that's just so self-indulgently fake. Yes, and and this is this is the thing. There's been a lot of interesting videos that people and fans have made recently, and one of the best ones I think was, you don't hate CG, you just hate bad CG. Yeah, and that's a bit like you hate bad looking explosions or bad miniatures. So yeah. it is it is that. But I do think there's this marketing part of it is really interesting because. Look at Mad Max. That's exactly what happened. They they basically went ballist, uh, nuts over the fact that there were so many practical stunts and we weren't allowed to cover the visual effects for three weeks after the film came out. Star Wars, you know, they've made a big thing of it being practical and real, but of course we know that ILM is doing a lot of work on the film. Um, the interesting one, if we, if we want to talk about awards too, is Interstellar. Now, I feel that that deserved the Oscar. In fact, that's the film that I thought would win the visual effects Oscar. But the truth is, Guardians of the Galaxy and Apes had amazing character work. Like, incredible stuff. But I honestly feel that it was the Academy voters' response to lots and lots of CG. Now, hang on, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Back up here for a second, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you understand that there wasn't actually a black hole that they filmed. <laughs> well, this yeah. is where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, and exactly, and that's my whole point. Interstellar had tons of visual effects, tons of CG. Starting with a giant black yeah, hole. Yeah, giant black hole. Oh, but did I mention the, the <laughs> whole end sequence when they went into different parts of gravity waves through time was not real? 
<laughs> but I think that if you look at the materials... Did a bit about the rockets taking off? Well, there's the whole point, isn't it? That if you look at the materials that they use to market the visual effects, you know, to the Academy and to voting people, um, they played up the... The yeah, projection but, but screens, they the miniatures. That up in, okay, they played that up in, uh, what was the thing that Johnny Depp as um, Lone Ranger? Yes. And it didn't work. Well, it got a nomination. So Did it get from the Bake Off to a nomination? It, was it nominated for Yes, it did. Yeah, exactly. That's really? exactly what happened. And and I, so there, I that, eat my words. Well, but but it's interesting you bring it up because I think, again, that's why it got a nomination. And there were there actually were lots of miniatures and sort of practical stuff there, but there was also like that whole end sequence was ridiculously huge V ray generated environments, you know. Um and so but back to Interstellar, I think it is also a Chris Nolan film and he says often that he shies away from CG, even though Dean Egg in his films uses it a lot. Um but you know, I just think also audiences are the ones that are reacting to this. It's not just the Okay, Academy so you're Duncan Jones, who's on the cover of your book. Did I mention it's called Masters of FX and <laughs> available now from all good Amazon bookstores? Um, and Moon, Source Code, and Warcraft. So Source Code is... Um, is that the one where it goes back in Source Code? Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal on yeah, the yeah. train. Yeah, which yep. is like a ton of CG, right? Because like he's getting blown yep. up and, and he's... And it's... A good film. I liked it mm-hmm. a lot. Me too. Moon, not so much, right? Moon was like, not so much this huge CG component. No, but lots of miniatures. Lots of miniatures, yeah. right. No, so you get to Warcraft and you're Duncan Jones. What are you doing? Because you're not going to do Warcraft with miniatures and rubber masks. No, and I, and I guess Warcraft already exists in a, in a game cinematic world. Um, Which begs the next question, right? Mm. Is this marketing aimed at the generation that grew up on games? And w- is that generation itself that adverse to to the digital techniques? I mean, does it make sense that a generation that lived through Xbox thinks that it's a bad thing to have digital environments? That's a good point. I, I guess I don't know that until we know the story, because that's the other part of it too, isn't it? That like we were saying, it almost doesn't matter if, if if it's really, really good CG or really, really good miniatures. If the so story is coming. <laughs> well, Last Airbender was very boring. That's what I'm saying. Though. Last <laughs> yeah. Airbender had a good visual effects, right? There was yeah. some like, really nice sequences, yeah. fluid yeah. sims and stuff, but it didn't resonate with an audience for story. Hey, so when you're talking to these guys, did you get any sense of them being defensive at all about digital? Reminiscing about the good old days when... In Cinefix, you didn't have shots of people looking at monitors pointing? <laughs> I think, yeah, occasionally a few of them. What they used to like was time. Time to work on shots and time to iterate. I mean, now, of course, there's iterations because you do shot versions. But uh, Scott Farrar, when he was talking about Back to the Future, just loved that he was sitting on a stage doing, you know, DeLorean blue screen shots and, um, uh, you know, he... They had the Hill Valley set for the skateboarding shots. So but here's the thing, right? In in Back to the Future, the in the first one, which I mean, I loved to death, right? Total fan. But in the first one, when they have the flames going past them when they're standing in the mm-hmm. car park, it's mm-hmm. a real fake comp for me. Sure. And at the end, when the car takes off and flies out under the trees, there's no shadow on the car. It's you know, it's not a perfect comp it's it's a stuck on top of comp um do we really think that 
So was that old school or new school, right? Was that like considered when you had, because you, you know, you could point to a thousand films that had rear projection where it just looked mm. so fake. It was like, no way you believe they were driving in that car. Well, the other part of it is people sort of kind of still look fondly on that kind of effect. Think of Jurassic Park that, that totally mixes prosthetic dinosaurs with digital. But the worst dinosaur in Jurassic Park is the fake one that sneezes on the kids that looks like a giant puppet. <laughs> but it's a fun moment and people honestly look fondly upon that stuff, I think. And they kind of look... They're not all visual effects aficionados or, or, or obsessive people like us, I think, Mike. And so people look beyond it. I think I think a lot of those older films that were mixing techniques yeah, but, really but, still work. Yeah, but, no, but I'm just, just going to call you out on this, though, because you said they were really great to be able to iterate on stuff, right? But let's think about what it meant to iterate on an effect shot in Star Wars. It meant running it through an optical printer mm. where, at best, it would take you days to get the, all the passes done. Yet a limited number of passes that you could do because of image degradation, because of the optics and the nature of the film. And then you had to get it back from the lab to see if the darn thing worked. And if it didn't, I don't know, you'd, what, two, three runs before you'd have to move on? That's true. And I guess I'm using iterate incorrectly there. I think was Scott was talking to me more about testing, you know, and, and trying things out. The optical printer is a bit like shot versions today. Um, but I but, know what you mean. But yeah. let's think about the, you know, the great sequence in X-Men First Class, I think it is. Anyway, the one where he runs around in the um, in the um, kitchen sort of set, busting out of uh, the with Magneto, and he's running up the side of the thing that um, they did in Adelaide at um, Rising Sun Pictures. Yes. So it's slow motion. He's running through the air. The bullets are there. He, like, you know, stops, deflects them, um, you know, positions all the guys so they punch themselves etc i mean just i think the best sequence in that whole film really really good work but i'm pretty sure that when i got to hear them giving a talk on shotgun that i saw that they did 274 versions of that shot or maybe 217 Mm. but it was some number like of that order of magnitude right now that allowed them to get something that was spectacularly entertaining furthered the plot of the film unusual, surprising, but quite human and engaging. You couldn't have done that optically. You couldn't have done it with miniatures and you couldn't have done it with less than at least a couple of hundred (laughs) (laughs) passes or iterations. Not even passes. It was like literally like version, the version number on the darn file. Yes. And, and so I know what you mean. Um, I, I think the thing that, that possibly other people have said as well is that on set in the old days, they, they were actually, um, given time to do their work, I guess, because there was an, an acknowledgement that it was practical work and the practical shot had to work, otherwise it would look terrible in, in post or in final. Um, maybe in the digital world, it's a bit trickier because if the shot doesn't work on the set and you only only have two hours to shoot it, it's often said, oh, we'll just fix it in post. I mean, that is actually still said a lot. Yeah, but, but I mean, I, I'm really advocating that a lot of this is just history through rose-colored glasses because (laughs) honestly while it's true that if you've got 200 million dollars at stake you really don't want to spend long in post because the sooner you can get the film into the cinemas and get your money back you know the better off you are at these hundreds of millions of dollars while that's all true cameron right now is working as we know on avatar two three four he's going to be working on those for years they are not being rushed to cinemas and 
they are going to be expensive. I have no idea what they are going to be, but I can pretty much guarantee that the guy who did Titanic and did Terminator 2 and did Avatar and at various times held the world record for the most expensive and the greatest box office uh, of our time ain't going to be doing a low-budget indie version as his follow-up. And they have years at their at their disposal. And that's going to involve testing and the genius of weather and... Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, yeah. surely we can't be... I don't know. I just feel like we've been painted into a picture of the good old days when... Anyway, was there any theme that these guys expressed to you that in this area? Was there any sort of, like, sentiment that you got that was shared amongst them? Well, I... I Going back to what you're just saying, it's actually interesting to think about that from the early days of, say, Star Wars. Richard Edland made a really big point that ILM at the time was the only visual effects shop around, and they were basically inventing the solutions. They really, you know, thought of themselves, I think you said something like Blackhawks, that would go in. And do you know what? Even with the huge visual effects films that are around... Um, now and you know the successful work we've seen over the years the truth is they still need to solve problems and they're still really pretty much like Blackhawks you can you could say that Edson Williams you know doing all that skinny Steve work and the stuff in um, Ant-Man you know he still has to go and solve it it still has to work Um, and they still need digital humans to work you know so they're still solving those problems and that's the theme that I sort of got from talking to these people they haven't stopped innovating you know, they haven't stopped coming up with solutions, even though they're not necessarily on-set ones. They're, they're either tools or they're, you know, artistic solutions to the problem. Um, and, and that also goes, it's not just the digital guys, you know, now doing digital effects, but someone like Chris Corbold, who's the practical effects, um, special effects guy for many Nolan films and many Bond films too. Um, he has to come up with new ways to do things. I mean, just recently in Spectre... Um, had this crazy wire rig, you know, in Austria for bringing down the plane that, that Bond was in, um, you know, and, and I guess that's, that's why they keep doing it. They still love it. They still love innovating. It's not the same old stuff. So what was your criteria for selecting these? I mean, these are <laughs> the experts of the field as deemed by Ian Fales, which is, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I would take your opinion over just about anybody, so... Totally trust your opinion, but like, what was your criteria? Like, was it just from all the stuff we've covered? These are the guys that rang your bell. Well, to be honest, I had a long list, and it was about forty people, and if so, not, if not more. So, was there anyone that you couldn't get to that you wanted to have in? I because you seem to. I mean, honestly, yeah. I was like thinking about that. I was like, well, I would. I mean, literally, Murin, Jalateri, <laughs> <laughs> like. You know, John Knoll, like, like there's like a lot of people, Paul Franklin, like it just it, the list, Edlin, it's, it's John Bruno. We haven't even discussed him, I don't think. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of people here that I would be like, well, yeah, those are the people that I would go for. The, the only person who I, who I nearly got in the book, but who was working on the new Alice in Wonderland, it was Ken Ralston. Right. Um, now, Ken would have been good, cause, yeah. you know, clearly he was around for Star Wars, then Forrest Gump, um, cast away and then he moved to Imageworks and did some cr- amazing stuff including the Alice in Wonderland yep. film um, and he was literally on set in um, uh, England working on that actually that's a funny story a lot of these people 
because they're still working, they were kind enough to talk to me from on set. Um, Rob Legato was driving to the Jungle Book set every day, and I happened to be in Iceland when I did the interview. You know, so there I am in Iceland talking to him as he's in his car driving to um, wherever it was shooting in uh, somewhere in America. I can't remember which studio they were doing it at, but so Rob's a really nice guy. Yeah, he he is, and everyone was really generous with their time as well. So. Um, yeah, but literally the list, long list, was about forty people, and so there was a limit of sixteen, and you know you had to had to choose people somewhere. <laughs> well, it is good. Um, I should also point out that there are a lot of good images in the book. Now, of course, they, you know, for any one film, you can't go into the kind of depth that we go into on FX Guide. But there, are, like, it's a, it's not just a text discussion with these people. There's a lot of great shots from a lot of great films um, that give people access. Is it only available as a traditional hardcover book as per the one you generously gave me as a present, which I'm happy to say <laughs> you autographed? Or is it um, also available as like a uh, downloadable um, uh, thing for your iPad? It's currently not available as a downloadable thing. As I understand it from the publisher, that's to do with image rights, which right. is always a complicated world. So you've gone old school here. That's yeah, what you're saying to me. yeah. That's. I mean, it's funny. I it, I have to say that when we first, when I first started doing it, some of the images I was finding, you know, to, as to illustrate the stories, would make each page just images. And then I realised, well, actually, if people are going to be sitting down with the book, they'd want to see the images quite large, you know, so they can study them. So in the end, you know, sometimes they're just one image per page or two images. Um, so I, I'm really happy with the layout that they ended up doing. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is that you'd sit down and have a read of it. Um, I guess it probably wouldn't work so well on your phone or on an iPad, but, um, you know, hopefully it does come to eBooks cause I think that's another good way for people to read it. Okay. So how long did it actually take you to write? I think I was able to do it quite quickly because, and here's me saying how obsessed I am with visual effects. In some ways, I feel like I knew many of these films back to back anyway, you know. Um, So once I'd been able to interview everyone, which, you know, that took a few weeks, um, it actually came together pretty quickly, you know, just another few weeks. Okay, well, I believe it's like 20 pounds in the UK and about uh, $35 US if you're buying it off Amazon. And it's a perfect Christmas present. There you go. (laughs) You want to give a perfect Christmas present to somebody in your family who wants to know about the Master of Effects. But it was been, uh, has been a really good read, and I appreciate you um, uh, taking the time to go through it. it. It is, like, you know, totally important that we um, acknowledge and respect the work that's gone before because it's so easy just to get uh, obsessed with the work that's coming out next. And, you know, there is no Star Wars Force Awakens if there hadn't been the Star Wars films that had preceded it. You know, there is no Avatar 2 without one, but there's just no sense that any of these films that are coming out are um, are islands everybody is building on everybody else and it is that kind of an industry and these are all people that i think people should uh, should know and, uh, and hear from yeah i totally agree and also i i i love that i was able to talk to not just you know visual effects supervisors but also the people from the miniatures world and, and practical world and makeup world too actually um always like to include more of those people um but you know, you, if you read it, you sort of get this feeling that it isn't just digital effects. It isn't just blowing up buildings. It's the other stuff as well. 
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when when you go to put pictures on the cover, what do you put? You put characters. Like for all of the destruction sequences, for all the great atmospheres, uh, for all the great environments, for everything that we've done and those, you know, pod race type sequences, the ones that get up on the cover are, you know, Gollum. They're like Mm. Davy Jones. They're the characters that, that, you know, we've really uh, grown up knowing, you know. So, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us, Ian. As I say, I can't plug it any more than that other than just recommend Behind the Scenes <laughs> with the geniuses of visual and special effects, Master FX by our own Ian Fells. Thanks, man. Thanks, Mike. Well, thanks, Mike and Ian. And I, I hope you uh, guys get out there and uh, check out the book. I think you'll find it's a, a very worthwhile uh, purchase and um, really good volume of uh, information that Ian's compiled. So check that out. Um, also, our October term at FXPHD is in full swing. There's a bunch of great new courses. Uh, there's a look development course in Maya and Arnold. There's uh, Hollywood nuke techniques for indie projects. There's uh, explosive pyro action sequences with RenderMan. I mean, really a lot of variety. Uh, there's an underwater shot class, motion control, uh, just just a wide variety of new classes and, of course, repeat classes. So go on over to fxphd.com and check that out. And check out the other podcasts we do here at FX Guide, um, VFX Show, the RC. Check those all out over at the podcast tab on the FX Guide homepage. So thanks for listening. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.